The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein, uh, your host for Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, it's a lovely day here in New York, and we have a very unique guest on the program today that is going to start discuss to a large degree the various interfaces that archaeology has and extends to in the 21st century. We have t- discussed a number of issues related to public involvement, to public outreach, to education, and to the expansion of archaeology from a purely academic field to one that has become increasingly more applied. Uh, my guest today is uh, Dr. Larry Coben who is the founder and executive director of the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, which is a non-for-profit organization that provides sustainable business and entrepreneurial opportunities to poor communities where endangered archaeological sites are located. So in this particular context, he has addressed some key questions in which he looks at sustainable sustainability as well as the connection between empowering local populations in the service of cultural heritage preservation. So these are topics that we have addressed in a variety of contexts over the course of the program, and now we have someone who's actually brought them together. He is an archaeologist and a consulting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, and his work focuses in the archaeological sphere on the Inca, the imperial expansion, and most uniquely the role of spectacles, rituals, and theatricality in ancient societies with a focus on the Inca. He has also come from a unique background. He has uh, started a number of uh, numerous energy companies, and he is serving on the board of NRG Energy and as an advisory partner for Morgan Stanley Infrastructure Fund. So with that unusually eclectic background, I'm pleased to present uh, Dr. Larry Coben. Thank you for so much for uh, participating in the program. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking with you. 
Okay, so let's start with your background, which is truly unique. Why don't you give us a little bit of your of your professional background, including how you broke into archaeology and how you came to develop a perspective that combines cultural heritage and uh, the local empowerment of uh, indigenous communities and local communities, because I think that's something that we have not come across. Sure. Well, I was trained first in economics and then went to law school and quickly decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. I would much rather be a client. They seem to be doing more interesting things and having more fun. And I spent the next 15 years being an energy entrepreneur related to two spaces. One was green and renewable energy uh, in its first iteration several years ago. And the second being uh, energy companies in development in Latin America, particularly South America, and more particularly in the area around Bolivia, Peru, Brazil, that region. And I'd always had a love of archaeology, but never had done anything about it, and was fortunate that after selling a couple companies, for the first time as an entrepreneur, I didn't want to start another one. I had this desire to explore another facet of my interests and went back to the University of Pennsylvania to do a PhD in anthropology and archaeology there. So I sort of, I spent really 15 years as an energy entrepreneur before flipping over to the academic side to study it. But I guess I never lost my interest in things applied. I was doing dissertation research at a major Inca site called Inca Yacta in Bolivia and found that the local people were growing crops on it. They were grazing cattle on it. Uh, we had the biggest building in the Inca Empire, single room one there. So that made for a great place to play soccer. But at 10,000 feet you don't really, of altitude, you don't really want to be going to chase your ball. Well, this building <laughs> contained the ball. Now, it wasn't great yeah. for the building, but it sure was great for the soccer players. And I tried all the traditional methods, which primarily involved a guy from New York telling people from Bolivia that the site they've been living next door to their entire life is really important. Well, you know, they know that, but when you're talking about people who are living in abject poverty, they can't really afford to preserve their past. They need to be able to eat it, and they can either eat it by destroying it or hopefully find a method by which they can make some money from it without destroying it. And that really was the origin realization of what became, for me, the Sustainable Preservation Initiative and the whole link between archaeology and community-based economic development, that it had to start with the fact that most destruction is economic, be it looting, be it mining, be it grazing, be it farming, be it real estate development, both small or big, and that therefore the solution also had to be an economic one. In that particular case, it was a fairly simple one. There was, we were a hundred miles from civilization. There was only one road to the site and we built a gate across it and we Bolivians got to pass for free and foreigners had to pay $10. And when I first discussed that with the community, they looked at me like I was crazy that nobody would pay $10 to see the site. And that's probably because $10 was the average monthly wage in the community. And so I, for $50, uh, built a gate and paid for a month's wages. Well, the first week we got 
$40. The second week, we got 30 more, which is a pretty good return, 140% in two weeks. I briefly contemplated returning to the investment business, but instead continued down this path and noticed how the community's attitude toward the site changed and now they wanted to preserve it. So did you find, for example, that there was a certain pride in the understanding amongst the local communities that they were from a, a sort of a, a, a very, very great civilization as well as joining the preservation effort to put it all together and to actually sustain themselves economically. I mean, it seemed like a, an incredibly well-matched uh, operation for that part of the world. It was, and I think... There was a certain amount of pride before. I don't want to say that people weren't proud of their past, but not proud of their past. But what happens is now that becomes tangible to you in a very real way and not some esoteric or intellectual kind of pride. And when the pride becomes tangible and the possibilities become tangible, people take more action. Once there was economic sustainability, one of the things we found is that there was a greater interest in learning more about the site and being educated in it. I think for both the reasons of pride and the possibility of taking that knowledge and creating additional income from it. So I guess the natural question that would follow as a result of that, and, and I think it's a question that has a lot of tentacles on it because uh, you and I probably both know that some of the world's greatest heritage sites and properties are in third world countries. And um, governments in those countries are different from ours. And I would think, uh, certainly based on my own experience, that they would like to get involved in this sort of thing in a variety of different ways, some legal, not so much, some not so much. So have you, how, how, how did that dynamic work? Did you get at all in touch with either local or federal authorities in either Peru or Bolivia that once, basically for lack of a better word, wanted to get involved in the action here? In the first Bolivian project that was the origin, the local government was extremely supportive. In fact, we had several community meetings, which was their method of governance, before we agreed to take this action. And as we've built the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, I think there's been a lot more interest, so much so that the government of Peru and the organization have, in fact, a partnership to spread the paradigm nationwide along the Inca Road system, which was last year named by UNESCO a World Patrimony Site. So the government of Peru, having seen the benefits at the other sites we were working at, now wants to spread this paradigm nationwide, so we're working side-by-side side with them to do that now. What about... Um expanding the appeal of this type of cooperation, uh, first on a commercial basis, because obviously these are fantastic sites that you're dealing with, and uh, are you encouraging ecotourism, and is that gaining any footing in Peru or Bolivia or some of the other places that you've worked? We're encouraging, and as you know, it's difficult to get people to go to new destinations who aren't big archaeology lovers. But we are starting to find that our sites are being inserted into the tour packets of operators uh, in Peru in particular and Guatemala as well. Uh, it's, it's important to help to drive those income that there be tourists who will purchase some of the products that are made locally by uh, people at these sites or, you know, will pay for the tickets or will buy souvenirs or will buy lunches or things of that nature. 
you know, the president of Lima Tours, Peru's largest company, is a member of our board of directors because he sees the potential for this. Uh, our organization has won two Tourism Cares Awards, which is mm-hmm. a travel uh, industry award that uh, is designed for community-based projects of this type. And so the paradigm, when I first started talking about it, as you might imagine in the academic world, the notion of using an economic solution to preserve archaeological sites was unknown and not particularly popular. But as people see it working and see it helping both the communities and the sites, those attitudes are changing. And we're doing everything we can to explain that and disseminate this paradigm as broadly as possible, even radio interviews. Right. Well, I think that you're absolutely right. And I think that we all know in the archaeological community that the uh, ability that we have to expand outward is very clear. It has to be done as scientific funding dries up and, and as more and more we have to rely on a more entrepreneurial spirit as well as public outreach that to just to sustain ourselves we have to expand and we have to produce uh, a product that has more application. Now, I'm sure, but I'd like to, for you to discuss it at, at Pennsylvania and at other places, how much of an uphill struggle was it to promote this unique message that you have where you're basically saying to, uh, to the departments that uh, they, have to expand their, uh, they have to expand their vision? I think it's changing. When I first started talking about, do you the, have uh, do you I have experience with that? Oh, a lot of experience. Uh, you know, I was called a commoditizer of heritage, someone who was looking to disrupt local culture, and a whole series of things <laughs> that I probably can't mention on the radio. Uh, and I would point out that you know, conflict is endemic to all of these sure. communities. They don't live in peaceful isolation and that the governments and the electric companies and the mining companies and all are probably causing far more disruption than I ever possibly could. And you know, I think part of the problem is people don't go and get degrees in archaeology and anthropology and classics because they want to be involved in economic development. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing to get a PhD, but if you want to get rich, it's probably not the right thing to do. And so I think there was a certain blindness maybe to the economic potential, not just for preservation, but for actually helping the people who live around the sites, many of whom, as you correctly pointed out, live in terrible poverty. And in academia, there's no benefit in an anthropology or archaeology department for doing a poverty alleviation project. You get benefits for doing your research and for publishing and for teaching, That's how you get tenure and promotions, not for doing something more broadly beneficial like this. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Larry Coben, uh, the executive director of the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, right after these words. Please don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The schizophrenia community faces tough challenges every day. The community includes individuals living with schizophrenia, their partners, parents, children, siblings, friends, 
neighbors, co-workers, and also their providers of health care and social services. To hear Dr. Gordon Atherley introduce members of the Schizophrenia community who are sharing their experiences, tune in to Schizophrenia Community Radio every week, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein back with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's guest and today's topic is very clearly associated with the types of projects and the types of interests that concern 21st century archaeology in a very big way. Uh, my guest is Dr. Larry Coben, who is the executive director of the Sustainable Preservation Initiative. And Dr. Coben comes from a very unique and very eclectic background where he has merged essentially local economic development interests with an endangered cultural heritage sites. We have been talking about his initial work or, or his primary work in the Inca area of Peru and um, I guess what I'd like to do is to transfer sort of the range and the extent of this discussion to uh, a broader field, things that are happening right now uh, in the wake of the um, tragic events in the Sinai Desert, the blowing up of the the, um, Russian airliner and next, of course, the horrific events in Paris, and, and uh, these are, of course, centered on the conflicts, as they have for a long time, in the Middle East. And uh, can you tell us what, how, how we can sort of extend our reach in terms of looking at, um, in terms of looking at cultural heritage in the wake of conflict or uh, as a result of conflict? Sure. I think one has to start with the proposition, and the State Department now has a whole program about this. Called It's called Countering Violent Extremism. People who are deeply engaged with their heritage, people who are empowered and making money, making money and not starving, rarely become violent extremists of the type that uh, either wish to destroy what remains of our ancient world or attack our modern one. 
And so, uh-huh. you know, when you look at ISIS blowing up things like Palmyra, that's a horrible thing. And without an army, I don't know what to do about that. But if we right. want to get ahead of that, if we want to present, prevent that, then countering violent extremism and countering the other heritage destruction that's going on in the world is critical. From my perspective, what's happening in Palmyra is a terrible horror. I feel helpless in the face of that. But that's really only 1% of the heritage destruction that's going on in the world today. The rest of it is all from economic development. It's being lost to agriculture and mining and energy extraction transmission and looting and grazing and residential development. I could, you know, give you a list. And, you know, ISIS is terrifying, but at least they're not the most significant threat to the world's cultural heritage, not by a long shot. And as a heritage person... I don't see any difference between ISIS blowing up a temple and a real estate developer bulldozing a temple. The result is the same. It's lost heritage. And we, in our organization, the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, we have an economic solution, and it works. And when you see how engaged local communities are, and when they are on the front lines of protecting their patrimony, that's how you stop destruction through economic means. If you, but if you don't provide them any income, if the value of their heritage to them economically is zero, then by definition, every other use is economically better. And people need to be able to eat their past because if they can't, they will destroy that. And really, it doesn't matter if they're living in a poor country or here in New York where we are where we see historic buildings torn down every day to build another condo tower. So from my perspective, the best way, even in conflict zones or potential conflict zones, that we can preserve our past is through this kind of community-based development. And I certainly hope that post-conflict, that will also be an integral part of our rebuilding programs. But let me play devil's advocate for a minute here on this matter. I, I, I see where you're going with this, and I think it ultimately probably is the right solution. But you have places you have places that are thrown into turmoil and conflict. And the immediate answer for poverty and the immediate answer, of, especially in matters related to the geopolitics of these areas, is simply get the antiquities and sell them. I mean, that's the most simple way to do it. What you're talking about is a long-term program where you sort of have to reinvigorate or, or refine a certain perspective that is somehow not always palatable to people who are struggling for their lives in, in the immediate sense, and they sort of get so embroiled in conflict, and they sort of go, go and they loot and pillage. How do you get over that? It's extremely difficult. I mean, I don't have a solution to stop ISIS from lighting, uh, from looting Palmyra. Yes, we can put more law enforcement resources against it, and people are working on that and you know, doing a wonderful job of it. But in the same way we haven't been able to stop the drug traffic in the U.S., it's very difficult to stop that without offering people some other kind of an alternative. The problem with it, the looting is, as you know, those antiquities go into a black market and they're lost forever. And we lose the knowledge and we lose the object themselves. But, and one of the reasons I started the Sustainable Preservation Initiative is to provide it, to try to provide an alternative because I think it's very difficult morally to say to someone, don't loot a site to feed your family unless you can offer them an economic alternative. 
Right. So in these incredible conflict zones where there's an actual war going on or a horrible terroristic group like ISIS, I think most of the traditional solutions that we have will not work. But as I said to you, that's really sad and it's tragic, but it's only 1% of what we're losing for destruction. Losing to ISIS is one thing. Losing to real estate development, farming, etc., that's something else because we actually are in a position to offer an alternative. You initiated that, and you were able to assemble a, a team. Can you tell us a little bit about the structural background to how you got this going? Yeah, after my the project I was telling you about in Bolivia, which was my dissertation research, I came out and looked for a charity or foundation that was doing this in the field because I would have been just happy to support them and not start another one if someone was actually doing it. But I couldn't find one that was actually doing it on the ground. There were people who talked about economic development. But what they meant by economic development is they were going to hire some people temporarily while they were repairing stones and walls and things. And, you know, our motto is people, not stones, but we're interested in providing long-term sustainable opportunities to people, not creating short-term dependencies on outside money. So after looking around, I decided to form a 501c3 charitable foundation to do this. And the first country that we decided to work in was Peru, A, because of tremendous demand, both on the preservation and the economic development side. And two, quite frankly, because I had spent so much time working on the Inca that I knew all the players. Mm -hmm. And it's hard enough to initiate a new paradigm without also having to un try to understand who the local power players are and what is the local culture. That is something that's extremely important to us because it's not a one-size-fits-all. But the advantage of being in Peru is I knew who the top archaeologists were. I knew how the most of the village governments worked. I knew what sites had demand and what sites were potential tourist attractions. So, so, so this we becomes began, an intriguing... This is, but this is, I'm sorry... Uh, this is intriguing, though, in a way. I mean, obviously, you knew who, the, when you say you knew who the local players were, I, I assume that's museum people, professors, uh, the local department of antiquities. What about, what about integrating that on an international scale? Did you bring in uh, professionals from here, from the States, from Europe, from other parts of the world where there was the expertise that's very often lacking in third world countries? Um. We brought some from the United States, but actually that expertise exists in most of these countries. It's just never mm -hmm. been applied to heritage before. Most right. of these countries have people who are outstanding at community development. They have people who are outstanding at heritage preservation, and they never talk to each other. Right. They do it for the natural environment. They do it for all kinds of education programs. The heritage people and the economic development people never talk. And our goal was to, A, get them to talk, but also to create systematized programs so that people, even if they weren't working directly with us, could apply it in the field and also could apply it in other countries. Right. But our view is you need, this needs to be as local a project as possible. So over 50% or maybe 50% of our employees work in Peru. I mean, Tell us a little about that. Work in Guatemala. 
We have right. very few people in the U.S. The U.S. is some advice, uh, fundraising, and compliance. But the actual project work, we think it's very important that you have people in country and preferably natives of those countries because they're the ones who are going to have the best understanding of the culture and the best ability to communicate with their fellow citizens. And so your, your organization here in the States doesn't, it's, I assume it's, it's manned by some people, but not very yes, many? Exactly. Yes, we have a very small U.S.-based staff. A small U.S.-based staff. Now, have you extended your reach to other parts of the world? We're now working in Guatemala and Jordan, and we will ex- we expect in some in time in 2016 to announce our next country or two countries. And you you uh, you're looking and how do you how do you identify a country? How do you identify a horizon or or a series of sites that you feel would be appropriate for applying your perspective to? Yeah, sadly, there's infinite demand for heritage preservation and for economic development of the type that we're doing. So what we look for is great leadership. In country, first of all, that's us is the most important. Everyone has heritage to preserve and everyone needs economics. So we look for great leadership, people who understand the melding of these concepts and are willing to work with us against entrenched interests that just haven't heard of this. It's really inertia we're working against more than hostility. Mm-hmm. And so we look, great leadership is number one. Two, a series of strong archaeologists who can we can work with in the first instances. It's the archaeologists who actually know their local communities well, because I don't care what permit you have, you can't work in a small town for five years or ten years without understanding the community exceptionally, exceptionally well. We like to refer to them as embedded archaeologists. So we look for a good crew of those who think that community development and preservation are important parts of their job, because Sadly, a lot of archaeologists do not. So those they are don't, really that's our correct. First, yeah. yeah, it's sad but true. I mean, they all pay lip service to the concept, but they think preservation is a function of the national government, and so is poverty alleviation. Right. And so, you know, those two factors are really the things that drive us into a country. We find that once we begin to do a project or two in a country with a well-known leader, It gets a lot of publicity. People want to know about it. We'll often conduct conferences or two. And then what happens is we start analyzing series of sites alongside the archaeologists to kind of prioritize where the paradigm would work best. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Larry Coben, the executive director of the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, right after these words. Please don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. 
you can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be part of the inner revolution sweeping the planet. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green on the Voice America Variety Channel. And now, also enjoy Beth's channel, Inner Revolutionary TV, on voiceamerica.tv. See inspiring videos about our guests and the inner revolution. Hear commentaries that will help clarify our time. And watch interviews of people who will matter to you. Think outside the box. Watch Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein here, and we're back with our final segment on a very intriguing program with uh, Dr. Larry Coben, who is the director, executive director of the Sustainable Preservation Initiative. And we have been discussing the convergence of local economic development and cultural heritage preservation, which, um, as, as we've discussed, is a concept that still has not been widely accepted in the professional community. And by that, I mean that in academic areas, especially here in the United States, where we sort of have an umbrella of anthropology, archaeology, it would seem to me, Larry, that it would be almost a natural segue for an anthropological archaeologist to bring these two issues together. And yet, as we discuss it, it doesn't necessarily work, and you're getting sort of, in many cases, some negative feedback from academic programs. Now, I know you've said that it's starting to change, but it just seems like such a natural wedding almost, don't you think? It, it should be, but you're absolutely right. It hasn't been. I think a couple things. One is, I think there's still a lot of suspicion of capitalism in anthropology departments, or at least in many anthropology departments. And they think of capitalism as a tool to exploit poor communities rather than to benefit poor communities. And so I think we have a real difference of perspective on what the potential for capitalism is. Second, sadly, a lot of anthropologists are not trained at all in business or economics, and so they can't address these issues. I was stunned when I returned to graduate school, and there were 12 people or 14 people in my cohort and more than 75% of them had never taken a course in business or economics. I don't care what your perspective is on capitalism, but you sure have to understand how it works in a rapidly globalizing world. It affects every single person. And the last thing that I would say is there's no career benefit from doing this. 
you don't get tenure for doing a great economic development community project or a great community preservation project. You get tenure for doing research, publishing books, teaching, and that's it. So the incentive system is skewed. Now, as a business person, we both, you know, you would, you know that incentive systems are what govern people's behavior more than anything else. The incentive system doesn't lead anyone to do this. Right. But, you know, I mean, there is a growing private sector of in the archaeological world, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. And again, one would think that with the fluorescence of ecotourism in many parts of the world and with, uh, with major funding agencies like the World Bank, USAID, that there would certainly be some kind of a place for business-oriented archaeologists to get involved in these types of things, which would almost be a win-win for everybody, wouldn't you think? I do. Uh, but I and I think that the you know some of the development agencies that you mentioned very interested in this and the private sector, but there I think the paradigm has been wrong. There the paradigm has been to do large projects, not small community-based ones. So rather than do a series of small economic development projects, they'll build one one million dollar visitor center rather than doing twenty fifty thousand dollar projects. Well, the maintenance budget on that $1 million center is often higher than the GDP of the surrounding community. Correct. So you can imagine after a year or two what happens to those buildings. They right. become empty, broken, and nothing particularly good goes on within them. I like to joke that I could give a tour in Peru of empty and abandoned site museums because it's easy to build a building. It's hard to create something sustainable. Sustainability is the key word, and long-term is the other key word, and that just hasn't been in the vocabulary a lot of the agencies. USAID, for example, frequently measures job creation by someone having a job for 30 days. Well, if that's your measure, you have an incentive to create a series of 30-day jobs and churn people out, do construction projects, do another one, right. do another one. Whereas my measure of a job is someone's had it for a year, three years, five years. That doesn't depend on me continually funding a construction project. So the opening is there. We're trying to change the paradigm. But as you know, institutional inertia is very powerful. And there are a lot of people who make a lot of money by writing consultant reports suggesting doing the kinds of projects that at the end of the day, don't work. And very few people actually measure their results long-term. They do their projects, they measure the results for a month or two, and right. that's the end of their involvement. Right. So let's talk about yours in some greater detail. How does it work? How does it functionally work? And, and, and how do you uh, integrate this on a nuts and bolts kind of way? Sure. We find it's very important to provide local communities with two types of training. One is related to products, but not just making pretty products. Production, sourcing, marketing, customer service. And the other, and this is where a lot of the projects don't do well that other people undertake, is basic business skills, accounting, inventory, taxes, uh, you know, alternative means of production, things of that nature. 
uh, style and design. Those are all things that are absolutely critical to business success. It's not enough just to make nice products or provide nice services. You have to be able to run a business. And that means involved understanding finance and some of the other attributes that go beyond making the pretty products. So we have what a capacity building program that lasts anywhere from one to two years to train people in these particular types of skills. Now, as part of that, they're making products by month five and six and selling them because nobody wants to go to school for two years on the hopes that they'll make some money two years out. In a poor community, people can't afford to do that. So it's right. very important to have an early win. And so we help them put corporate structures together. We legalize them so they're part of the formal tax system so they can give people receipts and fill mass orders. Mm-hmm. We talk about inventory management and this tourism and many markets are particularly seasonal. All of these kind of things are a critical element of our training programs. We work with them to see what their local skill sets are so we know what products can be made and make sure that the products have a relationship to heritage so that you're creating a stronger tie between the community and its past and in particular with its archaeological sites. So, and then we, and, you know, we will invest money mostly in that capacity training program sometimes in a little bit of infrastructure. And then people are kind of on their own. We become advisors. But it's the responsibility of those local communities to make their businesses work. So it's a little bit like almost a seed capital fund, as you were, only a seed capital fund with a lot of capacity training. Right. Well, you know, there are other efforts in that direction. I mean, people are doing that. We've been involved in some of those issues, and I think our perspectives are very similar. What you're essentially doing, um, and and we have worked in a couple of places which uh, were actually active war zones, and and the idea behind that is to put put, put together basically what we would call an archaeological SWAT team where you sort of bring a sort of an infrastructure and you bring sort of a series of technical expertises to a host country and you spend a fair amount of time with the people who are going to be there after you leave and sort of put them in charge, give them the equipment because ultimately it's their job to maintain it. But I think one of the things that you point out is where what's the what's the timeline for that, and how do you sustain right. it? And it's a question of sustainability. And I think that's really uh, you put your finger on the real real major issue is where is it after you go? Exactly. And I think to do that and know if you're successful, you need to go back and take a look. I don't want to imply that we're the only people in the world doing this. I think you know we're doing it systematically and trying to create a paradigm for others to utilize on an international basis. But certainly sustainable projects have been, you know, are people try to carry them out all the time. If I have a qualm with them, it's that people often don't want to go back and look a year later, two years later, three years later, and the funding often isn't there to do that. Right. What about what about trying to encourage this type of an archaeological bent, if you will, into our higher education system? I know it's ridiculous in terms of, uh, of the mountain well, mountains I that think one would it, have it, to it, it's, climb. It's great. Um, next year, if it's hopefully going to come together, I'm going to start teaching a sustainability course at UCLA. 
Uh-huh. Um, there's a course being taught right now by one of our board members, a gentleman named Peter Gould, on cultural heritage economics at the University of Pennsylvania. But I think what I'm actually trying to work toward is more of a one-to-two-week SWAT course that I could take on the road to the top ten departments. Right. I think you can, it might not be for academic credit, but it's things that everybody should know and begin to set up a network where people can call in. And right now, people don't even know what questions to ask. Right. You need to at least arm people enough so they can call up our organization or other organizations and say, I think this is a ripe area for this. You know, I see these six factors. What's the thing I should do next? Right. So unless people are armed with that and know what to do, the best intention people aren't going to have success in this. this starting a business is not easy. Even no, in, you know, in the United States with all the capital markets and everything we have in terms of entrepreneurship, a lot of businesses, startup businesses, as you know, fail. Yeah, they do. And so we need to maximize people's chances. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Larry Coben, uh, the executive director of the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, right after these words. Please don't go away. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. He'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you 
This is Joe Schuldenrein. My guest today is Dr. Larry Coben, the Executive Director of the Sustainable Preservation Initiative, and we have been talking about the expansion of uh, the archaeological uh, sustainability initiative that he has launched, wherein he assembles programs for local community development against a background of cultural heritage preservation. Uh, can you give us a couple of examples of uh, a number of projects that you have done successfully and a couple of cases where you're looking to, to uh, provide and uh, sort of uh, expand your model? Sure. Uh, our first project that we ever did was at a well-known famous cemetery site in northern Peru called San Jose de Moro. And there, there was a gentleman who'd been laboring in a dig there, and he had sort of been playing with how to make replicas of the most beautiful moche fine line painted ceramics that were being excavated. And these are spectacularly beautiful. People, you know, go to our webpage, sustainablepreservation.org. They can see them. But these are spectacularly beautiful, but very intricate to make. And this gentleman, before we got there, sold a couple hundred dollars worth of product every year. In the meantime, the site was being looted frequently. Uh, more and more the site was being encroached on. The community was building on top of it. And uh, an archaeologist uh, then, then became vice minister of culture for Peru and is now our vice president of Latin America, Luis Jaime Castillo, who had tried all the traditional paradigms, came to us and said, let's try this economic development thing. We need to do something to save the site and help the people in this community. And so the gentleman who was the ceramic maker, we, we worked with him to create essentially a studio where he trained approximately 12 local people to make these with him to sell these beautiful replicas to uh, local tourists and visitors who were coming by the site. And so we went through the training program I mentioned before, and okay, he had sold $200 before we got there the first year. He sold over five, he and the studio sold over $5,000 worth. The second year over 11,000 and the third year over 13,000 worth. And now these have an vi incredible viable business there selling these ceramic replicas. In addition, because there were tourists coming, several local women, we trained them to make meals in their houses so people who wanted an authentic dining experience could have that. And they generated several thousand dollars of additional revenue. And other people who made textiles just showed up and said, hey, can we set up right next door here to the, and start selling their textiles? So what you're creating also is a catalyst for other economic development. It's an economic engine. There's a multiplier effect of this type of project. So that's one project. The other project I would briefly mention is that the famous uh, Inca and pre-Inca site next to Lima called Pachacamac. We have a wonderful group of 24 women there who have taken this training program and have been selling all kinds of products to tourists. They just started selling six months ago. They've already sold $8,000 worth of products. And one of the amazing things about these women is they took our training program. We went away for a little while during a break and came back and they had posted on the wall an organization chart. And they could, based on what they had learned, and they could explain what each of the people that uh, was in that organization chart did, what their responsibilities were, how to interact, essentially how they were going to manage their business. There is few things more moving than watching a group of women who've been excluded in a macho society 
from economic development, grabbing this opportunity and going with it. And I talk with them frequently and each in their own way says, no one has ever given me a chance to excel. No one has ever given me a chance to learn and succeed. And that's really what we're about, letting people have the opportunity to succeed. If you succeed economically, what comes with that is you succeed in self-esteem, educationally, dignity, and in a whole slew of other factors. But if you can't succeed economically, you can't get to those other levels. So those are just two examples of projects where I think we've made an enormous difference, not just to the people working at the projects and not just to the preservation, but to the communities as a whole that are around these sites. You raised the question about uh, the role of women, which obviously in craft-related operations, and as you had indicated also the culinary aspect of some of this, that involves women on a scale that you said uh, really is unprecedented. How is that being uh, incorporated into the society, and what is what is the perspective on that locally? I mean, we, the, we don't... Normally, we don't insist on women taking these opportunities, but women seem to be the most curious and really want these opportunities badly. And as you know, to be an entrepreneur, the first rule is you have to want it pretty badly. Yes. And so really as much by default as anything else, uh, we, we, we do insist that women become aware of these, and when they do, they grab them. So I would say that 85% of the artisans that we're working with at present are women. And, you know, some of them have resistance at home. In a macho culture, their husbands insisting that they, you know, be home to do everything. But earning money kind of changes that to some degree, not completely. Sure. So what frequently happens is we go to a site and in the first week of classes, 50 people are there. And by week eight, there's only 25 or 30. The normal attrition rate during these courses is probably about 40%. And those are the 40% whose life circumstances simply either don't allow them to or they don't want to be part of this kind of a project, this entrepreneurial venture. Of What's course. surprising is how many people really stick with it. And obviously it does have a long-term effect. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to overturn a cultural norm, but certainly it, it injects a, a, tremendous, a new, new revenue stream, if you will, into, into the community, as well as essentially changing the role and the status of women, both in the short and long term, I would think. Absolutely. It, it changes people's economic status, but especially for younger women, it so it opens up a whole range of potential and possibilities that you know, the traditional role doesn't have to be the path they take in their life. If that's what they choose, great. And it's true even for you know many of the older women who you know with money comes a, a, an opening of opportunities in a whole slew of things that quite frankly we can't contemplate coming from a different society. Right, because it's a totally different template. Exactly. Exactly right. And uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. Going forward, where do you see your program going and where do you see this entire sustainability effort going? Our program, I mean, we want to expand as rapidly as we can, which is, depend as I said to you, the demand is uh, infinite. 
The supply really, of course, as a 501c3 depends on our ability to find resources, both financial and human, or getting governments like that of Peru to adopt this because they can spread it much more quickly. But we want to prove to people that this is a global paradigm, and we're happy to support other organizations in their own countries that would like to do this. They don't need one of our offices there. We're happy to help them from afar. Sustainability, to me, is the future of the world. We're not going to have any archaeology left to do if we don't sustain our cultural heritage resources, number one. And number two, communities more and more are going to say, why let this foreigner come here and work if there's no long-term benefit in it for us? So I think for archaeologists to keep practicing, sustainability is also critical. And on that note, we are going to have to wrap things up. I want to thank uh, Dr. Larry Coben of the Sustainable Preservation Institute uh, for being in, in, on our program and for offering us some new insights on the reach of archaeology and the convergence of cultural heritage management and local economic development. Thank you so much. Thank you. And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein saying good evening, and we will see you again. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.